Well, greetings in the worthy name of the Lord Jesus. Today I welcome you to again to the Gospel of John. If you would open, I like to think of it as the Gospel according to John, because truly it is the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is according to the writing of the Apostle John. So as we continue our series in, uh, in this gospel, we come to a passage here in John 12. We'll, uh, our text today will be John 12, verse 12 through verse 26. And uh, if we remember the um, last week, we considered the consequences of the resurrection of Lazarus. And uh, we noticed how that, um, that, uh, that wonderful miracle of the Lord Jesus brought out a really serious reaction from the scribes and Pharisees, and they began to plot his murder. And then also, in contrast to that, we noticed the beautiful picture of Mary and her anointing of the Lord Jesus. And uh, now uh, we come to verse 12, and let's begin reading here in John 12, verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. When Jesus, then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. 
But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Well, we have, again, a beautiful portion of Scripture. I want to, I have titled this, The Humble King. Just a simple title, The Humble King. A few things of note here at the beginning. Verse 1 of chapter 12 sets the timeline. If you noticed, last time in verse 1 of chapter 12, then six days before the Passover. Six days before the Passover. That makes it on Saturday. His cross is less than a week away. He is really close to the end of his earthly ministry here. Um, our text here today in verse 12, I believe, begins in, begins Sunday or Monday. You know, I, I'm not, I can't be too definitive about that, but I think it's the text today in verse 12 is Sunday or Monday, depending on whether verse 9 took up Sunday. Now, we see that Saturday, six days before the Passover, there beginning in verse tw- of chapter 12, we see the anointing of Mary. There was a supper at Simon the leper's house, and Mary anointed the feet of the Lord Jesus, etc., etc. That was, you know, we don't know if supper means what it means to us. I didn't even do, I didn't do a word study on the word supper. But we're used to thinking of supper as in the evening. So it's very possible that it was Saturday evening that uh, this occurred in, uh, in the uh, anointing there of, of Mary. And then in verse 9 it says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that, he might, that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So that could have been the next day following. That could have been the Lord's Day. It could have been Sunday morning, which it wouldn't have been considered the Lord's Day then yet. But it could have been Sunday morning or Sunday. So he was anointed on Saturday. And uh, chapter 12 now, just as we wrap up a few things about kind of the area that we're in in the gospel, Chapter 12 marks the end of Jesus' public ministry. I I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Chapter 12 is the end of Christ's public ministry in the gospel according to John. Interesting that chapters 13 through 17 are all private and personal teaching to the Lord's disciples. Chapter 13 begins, notice what it says in chapter 13 in verses 1 and 2. 
Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, and supper being ended. Thursday night. Okay? That's when this was. Thursday night before Friday's um, crucifixion. So chapter 12 covers this period from Saturday to Thursday. So our text begins the next day. Now I already mentioned this could be Sunday or Monday. But I'm leaning toward Monday. Now here's why. If you flip back, I think we need to go back to Exodus chapter 12, just briefly. Exodus chapter 12, a familiar passage where the Passover is instituted. I found this very interesting to consider about the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus into Jerusalem. Notice what he says in chapter 12 of Exodus Now the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 1, and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. In other words, this is supposed to be your calendar year starting this month. It shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, and a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So interesting is that the children of Israel were to go out in their flock and they were going to sort through them, just like we do. We're fixing to go do a show somewhere. We're going to pick the very best, right? Because it represents the farm. So they go out there and they pick out the one that is unblemished, whether it was from the sheep or the goats. They set it aside for four days, right? That's the 10th day of the month. On the 14th day of the month, it's killed. So that marks the Passover lamb was selected on the 10th, killed on the 14th. It was set apart on Monday and killed on Friday. This triumphal entry marks the setting apart of the sacrificial lamb for the Passover. This triumphal entry is, so to speak, it's the Lord, it's, it's God in heaven saying, here is my sacrifice for you, Jerusalem. Here is my sacrifice for you, people. And he, they, he, he comes in in a triumphal parade. And I just love this picture. Remember after Lazarus' death, or after Lazarus' resurrection, I should say, 
and the plot to kill Jesus. How Jesus withdrew to Ephraim. He went into a city in the wilderness or withdrew in a city close to the wilderness and walked no longer openly among the Jews. It was, it was a because they, there was now an official edict out to kill him. We, are, we have a committee that's planning to figure out how we can get this man in the grave. That was what happened at the end of chapter 11, where they called that meeting, do you remember? Well, Jesus' response was to withdraw themselves to the point of chapter 11 closing with the people wondering if he would even come to the feast, remember? They, they, the people in verse, let's, let's look at um, here in, um, in verse 55 of chapter 11. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? It was a question. Do you think he will come in light of the fact that there's a word out that whoever knows where he is, report it to the Sanhedrin so that we might take him? So Jesus had withdrawn because of this edict. But now all of a sudden in chapter 12, in verse 12, here he comes. Like boldly. He presents himself and says, here I am. If you want me, take me. As if to say that it is now time for me to present myself. Indeed, isn't that what he said? He did say that the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified, verse 27, where he says, um, actually, verse 23, but the, Jesus answers to them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. You know, this, this glorious King here that we have, as, as these people cried out, The King of Israel, here is that seeming contradiction of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, that it could possibly be that he was both king and lamb. But that's true. He was both king and lamb. And that is what we're seeing here. So with that backdrop, I want to address this passage in three sections and subtitles. The number one point I want to make here is the king's entourage. The king's entourage, verses 12 through 16. The second one is the king's appeal, verses 17 through 22. And number three is the king's agenda, verses 23 through 26. So first off here, the king's entourage. You know, any important figure especially a king, would have an entourage, wouldn't he? I mean, wherever he goes in a public said, there's, there's security of nothing else, right? There are people in front and behind. They're all around. They're his entourage. They, they could very well be dignitaries and VIPs 
and all of those who would come out to welcome the king. But notice here in verses 12 through 16, this great multitude, verse 12, that had come to the feast. Well, who were this multitude? Now, these were those who had came to the feast out of the country. In verse 55, I read that earlier, that many went from the country up to Jerusalem. I do not believe that this group was primarily residents of Jerusalem. It, it may have been definitely some of those there, but they were, they were country people who had come to the feast and they, um, they sought Jesus and they were the ones who were asking this question, do you think that the, the danger that the scribes and Pharisees represent will keep him from attending this feast? Interestingly, this account of the triumphal entry is found in all four Gospels. All four Gospels recount this occasion where Christ triumphantly came into Jerusalem and I believe it was last time that we considered, we, we, we read where in Luke, I think it's Luke 19, where he wept over Jerusalem. And he said, if you would have just known what pertained to your peace, if you would have recognized the day of your visitation, but now you haven't, you have rejected me, and there was not going to be one stone on top of another because you have rejected me. So all four Gospels recount this occasion, and it calls it a great multitude. Another place calls it a very great multitude. Um, these were the Messiah's welcoming committee. I don't know how many people are in a multitude. But it means... Especially if it's a great multitude, it means a lot of people. And if it's a very great multitude, it, it could be hundreds and hundreds of people. They went before him. In, in one passage it says that, well here it says that they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. In another place it goes, it says that they went before him. They threw their clothes in the road. They waved palm branches. They threw palm branches in the road. And then they were, here comes Christ riding the donkey. And then there's, some, there's people behind him. They followed him. They were, he was surrounded by these people. They went before him and followed after him. In Luke 19, verse 37, it says this way about what they, what they were doing. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. I mean, it's here, I think it is, where, no, it's not. It might, must be in the Matthew account, where a little bit later, when Jesus went to the temple and the Children were running through the temple and or running around the temple there and, and shouting, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And, and the scribes and Pharisees said, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said, well, have you never read where it says that the Lord has perfected praise out of the mouths of babes? And that's, that is in that context of the triumphal entry and the immediate aftermath of that. 
In Matthew 21, 10 and 11, I'll just flip back and read two verses there, where he says, Matthew 21, in, the, in 10 and 11, And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. You see, there was a turmoil. There was a, an upheaval in the city because the whole city was stirred. And they said, what is going on? What is going down? And they said, well, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. Now, this is the entourage, this common folk that's out there to bless and, and rejoice in Jesus Christ. Notice now who was not there. Who was not there to welcome the king? There's no dignitaries. There were no officials. There were no, no one in authority meeting him and giving him the key to the city. No. This was a parade that was, they didn't have any ticker tape. They simply grabbed what was available, and it was palm branches. And these palm branches... It's thought that something like 200 years earlier, this had started with, you know, that the waving of palm branches had become a national symbol. And uh, it, if you just simply, some of you have a MacArthur Study Bible, you can read what MacArthur says about, about these, um, these waving of the palm branches. But it signaled a fervent hope of a messianic liberator. Would to God would deliver us. And, and, and the, the common people were rejoicing in, in, this, uh, in, this, in this king. Notice what they said. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. Now, um, this, this uh, comes from Psalm 118, and this is a common, this was a common hymn that was sung at the Passover. And in Psalm 118, 24 through 26, it says this way, This is the day that the Lord has made. Don't, we're very familiar with this, right? This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But it's, it was a particular day. It wasn't just, you know, we use it for an everyday you know, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let's rejoice today. No, it, this means more in that this is the day. See, this is the presentation of Jesus Christ to the nation of Judah for their salvation. This is the sacrificial lamb set apart, sanctified for the sacrificial work of the cross at Calvary. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And then verse 25, save now, I pray, O Lord. That is the meaning of Hosanna. Save now is what it means. It's a, it's a, it's a prayer of, of, of a, it's a cry to the Lord, but it's also a, an exclamation of adoration. Save now, I pray, O Lord. And that is... Um, that word, Hosanna. And then he goes on, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And so that is the cry that was coming out of their mouths. These people were scriptural people. They understood the Old Testament, or at least they applied it here uh, to this triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus. And they were versed in Old Testament scripture, which that was all that they had. They had the, the um, they had, they were very familiar with the Psalms. Notice then, going on here in verse 15 or verse 14, Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, we have to read the actual prophecy of that in Zechariah. It is Zechariah 9, verse 9. And again, I'm only going to be there for a little bit to read it for you. Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. See, the Lord Jesus didn't come in on a white charger, did he? He didn't come in like a king in it, on his chariot. No. He come in on a slow-paced donkey's colt, humble, lowly, just, and having salvation. Isn't that true what they were crying out? Hosanna! It was... It was saved now, O Lord. They were crying it out to the right one, weren't they? But whatever was in their hearts, we don't know. I think they were kind of looking for a physical liberator. We don't have to sit in judgment here over the people who were crying out front and back, you know, throwing their clothes down, the palm branches and all. Maybe there were some in there that were genuinely understanding that his mission is not a physical kingdom, but rather a spiritual deliverance. Whatever it is, we, we don't have to sit in judgment here of that. But they were honoring the Lord Jesus here. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. Notice what he says um, here in verse 16. It's interesting isn't it, brothers and sisters, that his entourage didn't know what was going on? They didn't understand. They were welcoming him, but they were not clear about what was going down. Notice what it says in verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Brothers and sisters, here is a nugget. If you want to build your faith, look at the predictions that were thousands of years ago and look at the fulfillment of them and you decide whether the Bible is true or not. We take this for granted. 
You read, a, you read Zechariah 9, 9. Oh, your king is coming. Then you read John 12, and you say, that's who that was. That's what he was talking about. Now, the people there didn't get it. But it was after the arrival of the Holy Spirit, after Jesus was glorified, then they remember. Remember what the Holy Spirit is to do? He brings into remembrance all those things that Jesus spoke. Beautiful. He says, actually, there's a, a, a verse in John 7, 39 that says this way, but this, is he, this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believers in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now he says, after Jesus was glorified, then they understood, which indicates the arrival of the Spirit which also says in John 14, 26, where he says this way regarding the Spirit, but the helper of the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And so this was and is a great confirmation on the identity of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I need these verses. I need, I need the, the Scripture to confirm the Scripture. I think we're taking these things for granted, but this is how your faith literally, practically grows. This is how your confidence builds. That you, you, and we don't recognize how these things happen to us many times. But you begin to... You begin to just have more and more and more confidence in where you've placed your trust. Because the very one who spoke it in Zechariah 9.9 made it come to, to pass. And interestingly, the people who were involved in, in, in the occasion didn't even realize they were being used. Did you see what he says in John 12 verse 17 verse 16? Then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. You see, it wasn't just that it was written about him. The Lord also made it come to pass. And the people didn't even recognize that they were being used, you see. It's a glorious thing when you see that God sovereignly is able to, to speak it, to prophesy it, to, to, tell us to, to tell it to us and then to fulfill it, bring it into culmination. Written in the past, fulfilled in the present. Actually, the Matthew account makes it really clear where he says in 21 verse 4, all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, your king comes. All this was done that it might be fulfilled. You see, we can, we can trust God. We can trust God with these things. We can. That was the king's entourage, even though they didn't understand all that was going down. The coming of the Holy Spirit made it clear to them. Beautiful. So we have number two, the king's appeal. 
So we had the king's entourage. Now we have, why were they so enamored with him? What was this king's appeal? This humble king, by the way, riding on the back of a donkey's coat. I mean, why was there such appeal? Well, listen, it is here in verses 17 through 22. We see what was going down. Therefore, in verse 17, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb, raised him from the dead, bore witness. You see, in this crowd, many were eyewitnesses testifying about what they had personally seen. They were saying, look, this Jesus, remember in, in the in, when they, the whole city was moved, well, who is this? Well, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. And listen, we were in Bethany just a couple days ago, and there was a dead man. And he stood there in front of the grave and hollered his name, and here he come. Now, what would you say? That's amazing. Are you sure about that? Yeah, I've seen it with my own eyes. You see, that's what's going on there. The appeal to, for, for Jesus, one of the, some of the, the greatest appeal that, of, that he had from the people was the fact that other people were telling them about all that he had done. He wasn't tooting his own horn. He was simply, they were simply saying, this is what we have seen him do. This, is, this guy's amazing. We've seen him. Bring a dead one out of the tomb. He walked out, all bound up in grave clothes. They bore witness. Verse 17, they bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. Remember, Matthew 21, 10 and 11, the whole city was shaken. It was moved. They said, it was because of what he had done. Even his enemies, remember, even his enemies said, well, the whole world has gone after him. We know that's hyperbole. But it means all manner of people are running after this guy. What are we going to do? Actually, they said, we have failed. Don't you recognize that we have, truly, all their plotting was indeed a vain thing, wasn't it? Psalm 2. The people plot a vain thing. These Pharisees were trying their best to malign the people against the Lord Jesus Christ. What was going down? They were just running after this Christ, you see. They, the Pharisees' effort failed against Jesus. Their bitter animosity could not prevail against what the people were experiencing. We have to remember that. What did the blind man say in John 9? John 9, 25. He says, I don't know what your con I don't know about this controversy you guys are peddling. I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but one thing I do know. <laughs> I was blind, but now I see. I don't know what your problem is. It doesn't matter to me, he says. But I know one thing he did for me. Just a few days ago, I couldn't have seen you guys. 
You see the power that that has? That testifying power of bearing witness to Christ Jesus, what he's able to do? You see that? That power. Oh, would to God that, that we would be that way, like this man. I don't know what your problem is. I know that he's helped me, you see. One thing is as clear as day to me. Once I was blind, now I see. That's what he said in John 9, 25. The question is, can Jesus deliver? Do you know that Jesus can deliver? If you know that Jesus can deliver, you're going to open your mouth. You are going to testify. There's not an issue about whether you're going to open your mouth. You are just going to do it. The problem is, maybe he hasn't delivered you or I. And we just kind of, or else we have forgotten the glory of the fact, as Peter says, we have forgotten that we were purged or, or cleansed from our old sins. And now we're stumbling around because we have not added to our faith virtue, to virtue knowledge. We have left off diligence, you see. And we've become old in our faith. We have become bear but listen when you rise up and you say i know that jesus can deliver you'll shake jerusalem these people when if you would have asked them can jesus deliver they would have said yes yes he can So that's, that's one of the things that makes Christ attractive to people is when others testify how he met their need. And listen, his appeal is cross-cultural. Notice the Greeks here. His appeal extended to the Gentiles. It wasn't just to the country folks that were in Judea. No, his appeal was even for the Gentiles. This, this is a cross-cultural appeal. Whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, Christ is your unity. The Greeks wanted to see Jesus. Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel could only, they, they couldn't get into the into the. They, they could only, in the, in the temple, they could only get into the court of the Gentiles. Even in religion, they were separated because they were Gentile dogs. You see, that's us. But this appeal extended to the Gentiles. They spoke to Philip about getting them an interview with Jesus. We want to see Jesus. Now, do we recognize that desire when we run into it? Do we recognize that? You know, it's often not stated this way. Did you know that? When people are expressing a need to you, when people are expressing a need to you that's more than they can meet, that's what they're saying. I would see Jesus. They might not even recognize that they would like to see Jesus. 
But behind their need, whatever that is, whatever that need is, behind that is a desire for something better, right? When somebody is confessing or unloading it to you, do we recognize that it's them coming to you? Do you have an answer for this? What is your answer then? What is that? We who are eyewitnesses should be testifying. We must testify the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. You know, just this week, I was challenged during the conversation. But my neighbor, he's a young man, probably somewhere around 30, 31 or 2. He has two little boys. Just cute little fellers. I mean, just little bitty guys. And we were having this conversation this, this week. And it was spur of the moment. We know each other fairly well. But he, um, he says, talking about his boys and all, and he just recently came home and started his own project at home. And he, um, we got to talking about family. And he says, how did you do it? How did you do it? How did you get a good work ethic in your boys? You know, and he was talking about how could he be a good father? We were talking about that. And I pointed him towards some principles in the scripture. But what he really needs, and I I thought about this later, and I want to come back to this. I want to ask him, who do you think would be the best dad that you've ever heard of? in all of history. Who would you pick? And then from there, we can say, you need to develop a relationship with Jesus Christ because this man is, an, is not a Christian, as far as I know. But he has this desire to raise his two little boys. They're, they're just little fellers. He has a desire to do well by them. That's what I'm talking about. We need... To recognize, I need to recognize that that's a cry for help. That's a cry, you know, can Christ deliver? Yes, he can. And we point them to Jesus Christ and his principles, you see. And we say, well, I have personally seen the blessing of Jesus Christ in my life in regards to my family. And we can, we can point them. That's just, that's just an application for us. Can we be this crowd? Can we be part of this appeal of Christ? Indeed, we can. We are called to do that. We are part of the appeal. But we see here in the last section, number three, the king's agenda. The king's agenda. That is verses 23 through 26. Now remember that this verses 23 through 26 are a response to this question. We would see Jesus. We desire to see Jesus. Philip and Andrew came to Christ. Well, first Philip came to Andrew. And then Andrew in turn, uh, Andrew and Philip told Jesus, verse 23. But Jesus answered them saying, So, what is Christ saying here? What is he saying in response to them? 
But this is Christ's response to the Greeks' inquiry. Jesus tells them, and us today, the hour has come. If you go back through, I don't have, probably don't have time, but if you go back through John, I have John 2, verse 4. That's the account of, the, of, of Mary telling him, look, they need wine. They're running out of wine. He says, woman, what, if, what is concern is that of mine? My hour's not come, you see. And he keeps going, 7.30, my hour is not come. 8.20, my hour is not yet here. 12.27, here we see in verse 27, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. See, now it is time. Now it is the hour. Now it's crunch time. You see, that's, what he, that's, that's his response. He says, most assuredly, verily, verily, I say, vorli, vorli, he sagiai. It says here, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies. It is like, it is like unless the Lord Jesus Christ in his humility comes to earth falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. The Greeks are cast out. The Jews are cast out. There's no one to come together to Christ. Unless this happens, it remains alone. The hour has come, most assuredly, unless a grain of wheat falls, unless I die. In order for me to be glorified by my followers, as John 17, 10, we read it this morning, where Jesus said to his Father, I am glorified by, my, by them. It is impossible for us to glorify him unless he die first, you see. Here is the absolute essential truth that Christ must die to bring any of us to glory. Unless this grain of wheat dies, it remains alone. In order for you Greeks to be included, I must die. But if I die, you see that? If I die, I will bring much fruit. I will bear much fruit. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, where he says this. This is the same truth where he says in Ephesians 2, verse 11, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, uncircumcision by what is the, called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That sounds pretty bleak right there. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. You see, he had to die. Unless this grain of wheat falls into the ground and rots and dies. I should not say rot because he did not see corruption. He died, but he did not rot. He did not see corruption. He was brought back. He was resurrected. But it was through the death 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, we were brought nigh. You have it again in Colossians. Where he says in Colossians 1.19, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. You know, I, I love to see the doctrine that Christ preached and the doctrine that Paul preached. I, lo- I love to see it agree with each other, and I know it does. But sometimes to just to see it and to recognize it for what it is, it's, 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 a, it's glorious. So this is the king's agenda, but there is more. His agenda was to come, to humble himself in the incarnation, to come to earth, go into the earth, to die, be buried, and to bring forth fruit. That is his agenda. But notice there's more. In verses 25 and 26, like king, like subject. Like king, like subject. Here's where it comes home to us. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, notice what, I think it was Brother Paul that mentioned verse 27. It's outside of my text. But he mentioned it at the break. Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. You see what, you see the difficulty that Christ was in? He said, Save me from this hour. He was recoiling, so to speak, from this hour. But then he acknowledges, but I came for this hour. And so he had this difficulty. But because of the need for, to fulfill the will of the Father, he went through it, who for the joy set before him. Now listen here. He says, he who loves his life will lose it. Now, we can say that Christ had all the right in the world to say that, didn't he? He can lay that on us because that's what he did. He did not love his life more than the Father's will. He wanted to fulfill his Father's will, and that's what he did. You know what it took? It cost him his life. And so it is here. So it is for us. The king loved his father's will more than his life. The love of, the love our, to love our life is to lose our life. To hate it in this world is to keep it in the next. This is a challenge for us. Do we, is everything on the altar? Have we presented our lives as a living sacrifice, acceptable unto God? Paul says it's just our reasonable service. It's just reasonable that you do that. It's just reasonable. I want to give you a testimony of Paul. He was on his way to Jerusalem in Acts 20, 
20. And he was having an he was having a an elders meeting. He was meeting with the elders of Ephesus, and he says in verse 24, in verse 22, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, every church I go to. The people of God are telling me you're heading into persecution. You're going straight at it. You're going to the teeth of the lion. Every city... The Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. Here's his testimony. He said, but none of these things move me. (laughs) I don't care. None of these things move me, he says. Nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now you think, you might say, oh, but that was, that was the Apostle Paul. Now that is true, that was the Apostle Paul. But you are in verse 25. I am in verse 25. The Apostle Paul is in verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it. In, verse 20, in chapter 21 of Acts, in verse 12, Now when they heard these things, both we and those that from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, that is what it means to not love your life. That's what it means to not love your life. He comes first. That's what he's talking about. Verse 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Listen, if you hire somebody, what do you do? You lay out their work and their wage. Is that right? That's what we all do. You hire somebody, here's what I want you to do. Here's going to be your your wage. Verse 26 is the same way here. That is verse 26. If anyone serves me, your work is to follow me. The outcome is that my Father will honor you. He even says, And where I am, there my servant will be also. Now, I I think we might think that that means... You're going to be in fellowship with him, and it does mean that, but it means more than that. If the master is walking down the street, where's his servant going to be? He's probably going to be right behind him, right? He's going to be right beside him. What can I get you? What can I do? How can I wait on you? That's what it means, that where I am, there my servant will be also. You see... To serve is to follow. How do we know that we are serving Jesus? How do we know that? He's not here. He's not here in the flesh. Let me ask you this question. Are you concerned with His agenda? Let's, you know, let's 
take it away from the realm of theory and bring it into the realm of practice. Yeah, I'm, I'm all about serving the Lord, but all right, how do we know that you're serving the Lord? How do I know that I'm serving the Lord? He's not here. We can say all that we want to say. And we do that all the time, don't we? Our words are cheap. Is his agenda priority in your life? Remember, this is the point is the king's agenda. Is it priority in your life? Or is your money more important? Are you concerned with his agenda? Is his agenda priority before your life? His word, his church, his ministry, his glory. You see? Now notice what he says. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Listen, you cannot claim to be serving him if you are not found where he is. If you're not found where Christ is, you're not serving him because that's what he says, where I am, that's where you're going to be found. Because you're so, you're following me, remember? You're serving me, you're waiting on me, you're serving Christ, you see. You can't do that in theory. It's got to be in practice. Well, you, now you can begin to ask the question, well, where is Christ? Where is he found? He's found in pursuit of sinners. He is found in the fellowship of the saints. He's found in the practice of the ordinances. He is found in the scriptures. Oh, where I am, there my servant will be also. You see? See, that's, that's how it becomes practical. You know where Jesus is, don't you? Yeah, you do. You innately know it if you're, his, if you're his child. You're finding him in service to another man. You're finding him in the congregation of the saints. You're finding him, may I say it, Wednesday night Bible study. Yes. You cannot claim to be serving him if you are not found where he is. Now, remember here at the end here, if anyone serves me, him my father will honor. That's, that is just amazing. Remember what, uh, was it, what was the king, uh, was it the king Ahasuerus in uh, the book of Esther? He found out, um, somebody told him that Mordecai had done him a good deed. And so he asked Mordecai, no, he asked Haman. He said, what should be done for the one whom the king delights to honor? And of course, Haman had to parade around <laughs> leading Mordecai, the one he hated, and yelling out in front of him, here is the man whom the king delights to honor. I mean, isn't that a picture of the sovereignty of God? <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, 
But listen, the honor that comes from serving Christ is according to the ability of the one who wants to honor him, the wants to honor you. Almighty God has promised to honor those who would serve the Lord Jesus. We have no idea what that's going to be like. It's going to be amazing. If you are where the Lord Jesus is and you're serving him, there's going to be honor. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. It's like you're going to be, I don't know, you're going to probably be riding some sort of creature and you'll be being led down the streets of gold and here is the man whom the king delights to honor. We don't know. But we'll throw our crowns before him. But the Lord has promised that if we serve him, his father will honor us. We, we should not discredit that. So... This is the king's agenda. To die, to bring people in, and his servants do likewise. They surrender. They humble themselves in service. They serve the Lord. They follow the Lord. And as we die, as we, die we bear fruit. As, our, as we mortify the flesh as we do our own desires, as we put them down and embrace the king's agenda, there's going to be great, great fruit. Praise God. It's going to be great fruit for us. Well, let's, uh, let's have just a, a brief word of prayer here as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you for this humble king. Thank you for the testimony of these people in John 12. Oh, Father, I pray that we might be part of the appeal of the King. Father, help us to embrace the King's agenda. We pray through Christ. Amen.